We are concluding our series this morning on rebuilding. For about the last two months, we've been talking about rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding. This generation or two of people who returned to Jerusalem following the exile, following its destruction, following its abandonment. Their job was to literally and physically rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And many of the lessons that we've taken from those stories, most of them, frankly, have been metaphorical. These guys that we've been talking about, they were literally clearing away rubble. They were literally cutting timber and laying stone and making all sorts of repairs to damaged buildings, damaged homes, damaged walls. We read their stories and we discover kind of metaphorical lessons about rebuilding lives, rebuilding habits, rebuilding relationships, rebuilding the church, all sorts of things that we've been talking about that you guys have shared with me. Rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding. But we're going to conclude today with one final look at rebuilding. And today is going to be a little bit different because the story I want to address today isn't metaphorical at all. In today's scripture reading, we will find no bricks, we will find no timbers, we will find no broken buildings or no broken walls. Today we are going to learn what happened when the rebuilders discovered that even if they made the physical repairs to their city, true rebuilding still required them to commit to a new way of living. And that's what I want to talk about today, a new way of living. That's really what we've been talking about all along when we've been talking about rebuilding. We're talking about life lived in a new way. We can't claim to be rebuilders if we just continue to live life as usual. And so let's remember our six rebuilders. I'm a little sad today because you guys know how much I've loved this picture that Lydia drew for us. We've looked at it every week. And this is the last time that we're all going to look at it together, right? But these are our six rebuilders. From left to right, we told the story of Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. The two of them were the first to return, and they oversaw the rebuilding of the altar. And it was during their time that the people that returned with them also began rebuilding their homes and the other buildings, places of business. And then the next two guys, kind of in the middle, are the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. They were the ones who encouraged the people after a time off to resume rebuilding the temple, to complete the building of the temple itself, which they did under Zerubbabel and Joshua's leadership. And then there's a little gap in this group photo because there's a a gap in the chronology. It was sometime later that Ezra and later Nehemiah showed up. Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra is actually the one we're going to concentrate on today. Ezra wasn't a construction worker. Ezra was an expert in religious studies. Ezra was a scribe. Ezra was a historian. Ezra was an ancient nerd. Ezra was the one that the Persians had sent back to Jerusalem to instruct the Jews already living there in the ways of Yahweh, to help them recommit themselves to their faith. If the other guys were literal or physical rebuilders, Ezra was a spiritual rebuilder. And today's story is going to begin shortly after Ezra arrives, when he discovers that some of the Jewish men had started families with foreign women from the pagan tribes that surrounded Jerusalem. And I need to give you a spoiler alert here. The spoiler alert is this. The story ends with the Jewish men sending these women away, sending the young children away, presumably back to their homelands. 
And because of that, because of that aspect of this story, this passage or the passages that we're going to read through today are some of the most difficult in the Old Testament because they leave us with some uncomfortable questions. The actions in the stories today don't really sound loving and compassionate to us. And much time has been spent throughout the years trying to figure out exactly how this could be what a good and loving God would want for these women and children. Now, time won't allow us really to get into all of the details about those kinds of questions. Uh, But there are two that I think we really need to address kind of as a preamble to the message today in order for us to comfortably move on with the rest of the story. So there's two issues I want to address, and the first is this. What does this story say about Christian divorce and, and marriage? And the problem is with this that the story seems to be telling us that if you're married to somebody that you shouldn't have gotten married to, the godly thing to do is divorce them. That seems to be what this story says. But I don't think that's actually what this story says. And and here's why. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, pretty much any portion of the Bible that you want to look at, all of it makes allowances for divorce. It's important that we know and understand divorce is not a sin. And it's not referred to in that way in Scripture. But at the same time, divorce is not something that God desires. It's not what he's shooting for. It's not what he's aiming for. Divorce, I know many of us understand this inherently, divorce is heartbreaking to humans. It's heartbreaking to God as well. And that's the testimony of scripture. But here's the thing. This passage that we're going to read, these passages that we'll see today, they aren't about divorce. As a matter of fact, the word divorce never occurs in these passages. The NIV, the modern translation that I'll read from, says that the women were sent away. Now, some modern translations do use the word divorce, but that's a way of just kind of their attempt to capture the essence of what's happening in a way that we would uh, uh, easily understand. But the word divorce, the Hebrews had actually a couple different words to refer to divorce. Ezra doesn't use any of them here. The word doesn't occur. He says the women were sent away. And the reason he doesn't use the word divorce is because it's actually not clear at all that any of these people were married. Again, there's words for marriage in the ancient Hebrew, and none of those words really appear in, those, in this text. Now, most of our modern translations, again, will just kind of offhandedly refer to the women as wives, or it'll say marriages. Some do, some don't. But that's because the language never actually says marriage. What it says in the Hebrew is that the men found these ladies and took them in. It then says they were living with them, describing what probably looks like a marriage, but never actually using those words. Here's why that's important. It is entirely possible that these were situations where Jewish men had taken young foreign mistresses without ever actually marrying them. Now, maybe they were married and maybe they weren't. Maybe it was legal. Maybe it wasn't. It's impossible for us to know for sure. And in fact, it's culturally pretty difficult, and one might almost say irrelevant. Let's acknowledge that in the ancient world, they weren't exactly going down to the justice of the peace. They weren't going to the county clerk's office to get a a notarized 
certificate. That's not how things work. So we have a lot of gray area. What seems black and white to us, well, were they married or weren't they, is actually in the ancient world gray at best. And for those reasons, I'm not arguing that they weren't married, so it doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is there's just a lot here that we don't know. We can't understand. It doesn't seem to be a very good analog to what God might have to say to us about our marriages. Because of that, I don't think we can take any principles from this story and apply them to the issue of Christian marriage or divorce or remarriage for that purpose. That's one question. Here's the second question that I think needs to be addressed before we really get into what I came here for today. And the question is this, what does this story say about racism? After all, the point here is that the women in question were foreign women. And Ezra is saying that God doesn't like that. He didn't want his people to marry foreign women, which let's be honest, makes it sound a little bit like God's kind of a racist. Now, on the whole, here's what we know about this. God does not prohibit close relationships, even marriages, with foreign people. And Ezra and the people that were alive at Ezra's time, they would have known that because some of their biggest heroes of the faith were married to foreign people. Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, he had an Egyptian wife, right? Moses, the one that had led them out of slavery into the promised land, he had a Midianite wife. There were men, uh, great men of God, great righteous men of God that had foreign wives. That was not something that God had unilaterally said is sinful or wrong. But in a few specific instances, God had put a moratorium on foreign marriages for his people. And one of those instances uh, was while they were building the promised land. And now they were rebuilding the promised land. And so it seems obvious that Ezra, and frankly most of the people with him as we read the stories, presumed that that meant that the old moratorium on foreign marriage should be in effect likewise as we're rebuilding the area that we were once building. The reason for those prohibitions had nothing to do with race and literally had nothing to do with race because the foreign people being discussed here are of the same Semitic race as the Jewish people. So this has nothing to do with skin color or race in the way that you and I in a modern context would think about it. The people being discussed are all of the same race. They aren't from the same nation or the same background, but that race isn't what's at issue here. What's at issue is religion. God didn't want his people intermingling in relationships with individuals from other religious backgrounds. And God was very clear on why. He said, you do that, you're going to dilute your own faith and you're ultimately going to be led astray when that happens. So it was a matter not of racial survival, but of religious survival. And that is actually a principle that is upheld in the New Testament and in the Gospels and in the teachings of Jesus and in the writings of Paul. We should not commit ourselves to bonded relationships with people whose faith does not line up with our own. And that's the principle at play. 
So if we're going to take anything from this story, it's not really about divorce, marriage. It's not about Christian uh, pair bonds. It's not about racism. Those aren't the issues that I think are at play in the text here at all. The issue is that God's people should not enter into life bond relationships with people of other faith. So there are actually, as I said, many questions and we could do the research and talk for hours and hours about some of the really difficult things in this text. But for now, I feel like I just wanted to say those things. If you have more questions, email me, call me, text me. We will geek out over some, some scripture together and try and dig in and answer what we can. I promise you when we're done, we won't have answered it all because nobody has yet. There's a lot here, right? But for today, what I want to do is just move on and get to what the, I told you what the story isn't about. Let's look at what the story is about. Let's move on to the point at hand. Let's quickly look at the steps. That's what I wanted to do today. Look at the steps that Ezra helped the people take to make sure that their rebuilding included moving on to a new way of living. So let's dive in right here in Ezra chapter 9, right at verse 1. This is just after Ezra has actually arrived on the scene. He has shown up, he's gotten himself situated, and one of the very first things that happens in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples. They have taken some of their daughters as wives. Now again, in the original language, it doesn't say as wives. It just says they've taken some of their, their daughters. They've taken some of their daughters and have mingled the holy race with the people around them. The people have not kept themselves separate. They've taken some of our foreign neighbors' daughters and mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. Ezra didn't know that that's what was going on. He had no idea that that was the situation he was walking into. This is how he discovered the problem. He had to be told about it. And I think that shows step one in this new way of living. Step one is awareness. We have to be aware. Some people are fond of saying that ignorance is bliss, right? What you don't know can't hurt you. But that's just not the case in God's kingdom. That's terrible advice, terrible counsel. We have to be aware of ourselves. We have to be aware of our lives. We have to be, most importantly, aware of God's word. And in large part, that means we have to be aware of sin. We have to be aware of sin. And I believe this is specifically a huge part of what lies in front of us as we consider what it's going to take to rebuild the church in America. I'm not talking about legalistic. I'm not seeing a future here where Christians in America are suddenly like, okay, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You're not a big sinner, but that was a sin. I did see you do it, okay? Andy, I'm looking at you, right? <laughs> He's already shaking his head like, not me, not me. I'm not talking about legalism here where we start pointing the finger everywhere, sinner, 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 chicken dinner, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about legalism. But I think we have to do a better job of reacquainting ourselves with what God's word actually says about how we need to be living. And folks, how often do we hear it? I hear it all the time. People invoking, Christian people, invoking God's blessing 
or God's favor on situations that God has very clearly already said in his word, he will not bless and he will not favor. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. I hear it in in political conversations. We need to elect so-and-so because this is God's man or this is God's woman for the office. Really? Really? I hear it all the time in, in relationships. Like, God, I just, I just want God's blessing on this relationship. People ask me that as a pastor all the time. Will you counsel us? Will you bless us? Will you marry us? And there are a growing number of times when I have to say, folks, I love you, but my hands are tied here. God has already said he will not bless that relationship. So I'm not going to stand here and pretend that he will. We hear it all the time in decisions that people are making. I'm just going to, you know, I'm, I gotta, I'm going to go ahead and do so and so. And I'm just going to ask that God is going to give me favor as I move forward. Well, you know what? God has already said he's not going to give you favor. We need to be better uh, aware of. We need to be more aware of what God has already said. We can't move on to a new way of living pretending that God's just going to bless the old. Pretending that he's just going to bless the old. Folks, I'm not suggesting that any Christian worth their salt needs to immediately become a scholar and a scribe like Ezra was. Okay, no PhDs are required in the kingdom of heaven. But I do think every one of us needs to recommit ourselves to getting to know Jesus and his word. Hey, there's a term that I came to mind a few years ago, and I've just, I, this has become kind of a heartbeat issue for me. It's something that just, I believe the Lord gave me the, the, the term when I pray for you guys, and when I think about this church, the term I like to use is fishermen theologians. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Fishermen theologians. I want HICC to be a church full of fishermen theologians. A theologian is, is a scholar who knows how to talk about, how to use the right words about God. That's what the word theologian means, right? Greek, theo, God, logos, words. Theologians are people who use the right words about God. Usually when we think about theologians, we think about PhDs in their studies, thousands of books on the shelves, writing scholarly articles and having nerdy little arguments with other theologians, right? Okay. That's not what I want us to be. I want us to be a church full of fishermen, theologians. The greatest theologians that history has ever known were the relatively uneducated people that just hung around with Jesus. You read the writings of Peter or of John or of Matthew wasn't a fisherman, but it it applies. You read the conversations that women like Mary had with Jesus These were the greatest theologians our world has ever known. And not one of them had a college degree. You know what they had? They had time with Jesus. I want us to be a church full of fishermen theologians. I don't care what you got on your ACT. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care if you got kicked out of high school, middle school, or grade school. That's not what it is. You can be a great fisherman theologians. Here's the thing. If you're not growing in your understanding of God's word, I don't care what you knew or how smart you were yesterday. I'm saying today, if you're not growing, if you're not reading scripture for yourself and digging deeper than you've ever dug before, 
I struggle to see how you're going to be successful in rebuilding. I struggle to see how it's going to happen. No matter what you're trying to rebuild. You're trying to say, well, you know, I'm rebuilding, but it's, it's not spiritual. I'm working on a relationship. Well, I struggle to see how you're going to be successful. Who do you suppose is Lord over that relationship? You got to get to know him. You know, oh, it's not spiritual. It's this. No, 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 no. I just, with love, I struggle to see how you're going to be successful in it. Let's move on. Ezra became aware. Awareness is important. That's step one. Ezra became aware. Here's the next thing he did. Verse three says, when I heard this, this is Ezra speaking now. I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. He tears his clothes. He pulls out his hair. These are cultural symbols of grieving, and that's step two. It's grief. It's grief. Change is hard, isn't it? Change is really hard. Change is often painful. And, and that's why so many of us so often don't want to change. It's because change is painful. It hurts. It's difficult. Change is painful. It has been said, though, that when change happens, it's because the pain of staying the same finally outweighed the pain of change. That's when change happens in our lives. When the pain of staying the same finally outweighs the pain associated with the change, that's when we actually start making decisions. And folks, that's why grief is a necessary part of the process. If we're not grieving the old way of living, we're not very likely to persevere through the difficulties of developing a new way of living, right? If we're not grieved about the old, we're never gonna move on to the new. That's what rebuilding is all about. It's not about being burdened by guilt and by shame. Oh, what a terrible, terrible thing I am. What a terrible, terrible man I am. It's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about honestly and clearly grieving the reality that once was. Grief. It's an important part of the process. The Bible consistently refers to sinfulness as something that grieves God. And if it grieves God... It should grieve us. It ought to grieve us just as well. Failure to grieve the old way of living makes it impossible to discover the new way of living. But, and this is true, get ready to say amen. Grief doesn't last forever, right? That's one of the things that's universal about the word of God, right? Morning grief, it may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? Grief doesn't last forever. Look what happens in Ezra's life here. I'm picking up in verse five of chapter nine. Ezra says, then I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak still torn. And I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. And I prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. And Ezra goes on there with a, a pretty lengthy prayer where he acknowledges the sin of the people before God. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but I encourage you to read it for yourself. This is a great place to dig in here. Ezra's going to pray and he's going to talk about the sin. You know what Ezra's doing? He's confessing. And that's step three. Step three is confession. This is different than grief, right? Grief. He grieved the sin, but now he is going to confess the sin. Confession is different than grief, and it's much different from just feeling bad about it, right? The world's full of people that feel bad about things. We, we feel bad about our old habits, but we don't ever change them. 
We feel bad about our unhealthy relationships, but we don't ever get out of them. We feel bad about a whole lot of stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about confession. We're talking about naming it. Putting it into words and calling it what it is. We need to take the initiative in our prayer time to do that with God. To just call it out and say, God, here's what's going on. And you know what? I trust you. You can trust me. You're not going to surprise me. Never once in the history of civilization has anyone ever confessed anything to God to which God went, I did not see that coming. (laughs) Right? So it isn't about informing God of the situation, but there is a very important principle at play here for our spiritual health. We need to call it out before God. Hey, God, here's what's going on. God's like, I don't know. I've known for a while. Yeah, but I need to call it out. I need to make it. I need to say it. I need to make it real because that's part of the healing process. That's part of the moving on process. That's part of the discovering a new way of living. I can't move on to a new way of living if I'm unwilling to give the old way of living a name. If I'm unwilling to call it out for what it is. Now, some of us will say, you know, I don't know that I really have anything to confess because the the damage and the yuck that I'm trying to get out of here, you know, I, I didn't actually do any of it. It's not my fault. Well, take your take your clue here from Ezra. Ezra didn't have a foreign wife, right? It wasn't Ezra's fault. It wasn't his situation. Ezra wasn't the one who contributed to the yuck of the old way of living. It wasn't his fault. Regardless, he was the one who confessed. He said, God, this is. Not God, they did. God, this is. Let's start talking real talk here, God. This is what's going on. And as Ezra confesses, something amazing happens. Israelites start coming out of the woodwork. They start showing up. They start hearing, overhearing, and then eavesdropping on his prayer. And eventually they start joining him, first in his grief, and then ultimately in his confession. And by the beginning of chapter 10, we're told a large crowd had joined him. Folks, confession is contagious. Did you know that? I mean, think about that in a relationship. You're, you're, you're in a difficult situation with somebody. You're in disagreement. And rather than jumping down their throat, you just come and say, hey, before we get going here, I need to confess to you that I missed the boat on this. Here's what I misunderstood, and here's how I acted poorly. I think you guys understand human relationships and dynamics to know that the overwhelming majority of the time, that person is going to be inclined to say, thank you. Actually, here's what I did wrong as well. Confession is contagious. That's not an absolute guarantee. It doesn't happen in every case, in every situation. But as a rule, it's just kind of the way people are wired. Confession is contagious. And that's what happens in Ezra's situation. And it leads to the next step. Let's read about it. Now in chapter 10, beginning in verse 2, Ezra says, Then Shechaniah, who's Shechaniah? We don't know who Shechaniah is. But I kind of think if we have another kid, I want to name him Shechaniah. This is cool. Then Shechaniah said to Ezra, there is still hope for Israel. Don't you love it? Ezra's not the guy who has to say as the leader, folks, here's what we need to do. 
no, some dude named Shania says, Ezra, we've been grieving with you. We've been confessing with you. Here's a word. There is still hope for Israel. I believe that's a word for somebody here. Maybe a few somebody's here. Maybe in the midst of your grief today, you need to hear the Lord say, there is still hope. There is still hope. For my people. There is still hope for Israel, Shechaniah says. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away, there's that word, to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of God. Let it be done according to the law. Shechaniah is the one who first gives words, who first verbalizes the possibility of a new way of living. He says, we don't have to stay where we are. Yeah, this is bad, but we don't have to live here. It doesn't have to always be this way. We can choose to go another way. And that's the nature of step four, which is repentance. Going another way. We've talked about repentance lots of times together. I hope this is something that you'll remember from other talks we've had. Repentance literally means to turn around and go another way. And we turn around because our attitude has changed. The thing that we used to be attracted to now disgusts us and so we want to go another way we want to repent of it we want to have a different attitude about it this is heart change it's that attitude that says i don't want to live that way anymore i don't want to live that way anymore and so we find a new way of living and we want it to begin now you remember that scene in uh oh man gen x is going to represent here when harry met sally Right? And at the end, Harry finally interrupts her at the party and he says, why did you come today? Well, she said, I came today because when you realize that you're in love with somebody and you want to spend the rest of your life with them. <laughs> Julie, help me out here. I'm misquoting the line. <laughs> you, you, you want the rest of your life to start now, right? right? That, that's repentance. When you realize that you've been headed the wrong way and you need to turn around, you want to turn around now. Let's get this thing done now. Didn't know there was going to be a Harry Met Sally reference in today's sermon. Oh, thank you, Billy Crystal. The Israelites, they wanted to begin right away too. And so they call a meeting. They say, here's what we need to do. We need to have a big meeting. We need to uh, require attendance from the head of every family in Judah. And so they call a meeting. They make a date. They make sure everybody is going to be there. And they explain the situation. And, and almost everybody in the crowd agrees that this is a big deal and it needs to be addressed. There's a couple of, there's a couple of holdouts who say, let's just sweep it under the rug. But, but it's not significant. And Ezra's able to move on with these people. They agree that it needs to be addressed. But, and, and this is, people say the scripture isn't like realistic. I don't get it because I think it's very realistic. The day they called the meeting, Ezra said it was cold and it was rainy. And they didn't have an amphitheater or a meeting house to be in. It was just a bunch of people gathered outside. And they're kind of like, oh, this meeting's going on and on. It's like Dan's preaching again. And, you know, it's just going on. They're very uncomfortable. And so somebody from the crowd makes a suggestion. He says, look, this is important. We need to deal with it. But we're dying out here. <laughs> Come on, this is terrible. Let's, let's form a commission. And let's give the commission the ability to just do all the investigation they need to do. When they're done with that, we'll reconvene and we'll move at, you know, as the commission recommends, right? This is, this is what they decide. And so Ezra chapter 10, verse 16 describes that commission. Ezra says, on the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they had finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So that's about 70, you know, their months weren't the same. It's about 75 days of investigation. 
They checked everything out to make sure they addressed everything that required attention. That's step five. Take an inventory. It's inventory. Step five is inventory. Developing a new way of living is rarely limited to what's obvious. You know what I'm saying? We see the one thing, but then we actually have to take everything else out and do an inventory because chances are there's other things involved. Developing a new way of living runs deep and it takes time to make a full inventory of our lives. Everything needs to be brought out into the open before God. A new way of living requires a full, honest audit of everything that I do and every part of who I am. Psalm 139 verse 23 says, search me God and know my heart. See if there be any offensive way in me. That's not a a rhetorical challenge. That's the psalmist saying, God, let's do an inventory here. You need to tell me what's up. Is there anything that I need to address in your power with your spirit? That's what it looks like to take an inventory. We, um, we pay a janitorial company to clean the church building once a week. On Friday or Saturday, they come and they clean the whole church building. And then about once a month, they also mop the gym floor. And so every month I get an invoice in the mail from the, from the, the cleaning services company. And the amount of the invoice tends to fluctuate a little bit because sometimes there have been four weeks in a month and sometimes there have been five. And, and then there's the one week when they, they actually do the gym floor. A couple of years ago, I got that invoice and I was paying it. And it just occurred to me that it seemed higher than it should have been. And so I I looked into the invoice and sure enough, there were, I think, two or three days that were in the course of the month that we got charged, the extra charge for having the gym floor mopped. Now, sometimes that happens because we have a special event and we need to add a a gym mopping or or something. But I I was thinking, I don't don't think we had anything. So I asked for Kelly's help. Kelly, could you look, did did we schedule an extra mopping here? She looks into the records, no, we didn't. I said, okay, well, we're getting overcharged here. Could you call the company? Uh, And she said, yeah, no problem. And she called, it was an honest mistake. They said, we're sorry, they took it off, you know, whatever. But then it occurred to me, wonder how long this has been going on. So I asked Kelly to go back and look in the files and she pulled some old invoices. And sure enough, it had been two or three, about three months prior, we did have a special, we need an extra gym mopping. And so the gym mopping got put on there for a second time. And then what happened is it never got taken off. So for a couple of months, we had been paying an extra charge for this gym mopping. I hadn't even realized it. It was an honest mistake. The company wasn't trying to swindle us. They just had made the addition and then just essentially copied their invoice without realizing that it was an unusual invoice. And so as soon as we let them know, they saw it, they apologized profusely. And they said, we're just gonna credit your account. And the end of the story is we got our church cleaned for free for the next several weeks, which is pretty cool. Here's my point. It would have been one thing to just notice the initial error, right? Oh, we got an extra charge here. Could you adjust the bill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the discipline that Kelly took to go back and look at the invoice, like to go back and audit the invoices, to go back, what's the word we're using? Take inventory of what had happened, helped us discover a blessing that we didn't even know we had. You know, you want to move on to a new way of living. There's probably some things that are obvious to you, but I think the Lord would invite you also to take inventory because there's some blessings there in what God might have for you that maybe you didn't even think of, that maybe you're not even aware of, that maybe you didn't even know about. How much more could change in your favor 
if you're willing to go through this step of taking inventory. That's what the Israelites do. The investigation reveals about 110 foreign wives or mistresses or whatever they were that we don't really know. In a population that's probably in the area of 75,000 people here. Again, just for color, it's important to recognize we're talking about less, far less than 1% of the population being impacted by this. And so the community deals with them as planned. They return to their homelands. And Ezra's story comes to an end. This is the end of Ezra's story. One more thing to say. You can see there's still one more blank on your outline. And that's because about 15 years later, Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem. He has recently come from the king's court in Persia, and he has the specific job of rebuilding the walls that surround Jerusalem. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporary. They knew each other. We presume that they were buddies, but these were very, very different guys. We talked about them before. Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah was a politician. He was connected in the king's court, remember? Right? Ezra studied books as a rebuilder. That's what he did. He got out the scrolls to rebuild. Nehemiah put on a hard hat and walked through the job site. He was, he was the foreman on the job site. He was very comfortable in work boots. Now, both Ezra and Nehemiah were righteous, godly men. But, you know, if Ezra was a member of, of the Writers Guild, Nehemiah was a member of Teamsters Local 104. That's kind of how these guys were different. So knowing that difference between them, what do you suppose happens when after Nehemiah has completed building the wall, he then discovers that there are still a handful of Israelite men living with foreign women and trying to raise families with them? How do you suppose Nehemiah responds to this? Can I remind you what Ezra did? Ezra wept bitterly and pulled out the hair of his beard and on top of his head. Look at what Nehemiah did. Chapter 13, verse 25 of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, I found out about it. And I rebuked them and I called curses down on them. I beat up some of the men and I pulled out their hair. Do you enjoy that as much as I do? Ezra's like, I wept and I pulled out my own hair. And Nehemiah's like, I'm not pulling out my own hair. I'm pulling out their hair. I beat them up and I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage and so on and so forth. He says, we're not doing this anymore. The last step, enforcement. Enforcement. <laughs> Folks, for real. Once we're committed to a new way of living, we need to passionately enforce that commitment. Now, I said today's message was not going to be metaphorical the way previous messages had been, but I feel like I should, I should qualify that here by saying if you're moving on to a new way of living and you suddenly find yourself beating guys up and pulling out their hair, I feel like you've done something wrong, okay? You may need to re-examine it at that, at that point. But you know what? We do need to model Nehemiah's zeal, don't we? We need to model his commitment to the new way of living. No backsliding, right? No ex, uh, exceptions to the standard. Nothing permitted but a new way of living. Church, I want to close with this. If you're trying to rebuild, if you're trying to rebuild, you need to start thinking about your life in terms of a new way of living. Whatever the thing is, I've heard from many of you as you've emailed me, shared in the aisles, hey, rebuilding, here's what it means to me at this time in my life. I rejoice in those testimonies. I really do. 
But here's where I think we're all in the same boat, as varied as those testimonies might be. If we are trying to rebuild, then we need to think in terms of a new way of living. The Israelites discovered that they could not rebuild their lives if they were still living with ungodly partners. And in the same way, you will not be able to rebuild your life if you're still living with your old ungodly hatred, your old ungodly habits, your old pridefulness, or anything else. We could fill in the blanks with a hundred different things that might potentially stand in between you and that new way of living that God has prepared for you. You can't keep living with those old things. You have to send them away and find a new way of living. A new way of living. I want to close this message as, as all good sermons close with a story about a sewer. A couple of years ago, we had, um, we found out we had a clog in, in the sewer pipe outside our home. The reason we found out about that is because sewage had backed up through the floor drain in our basement. And it was as nasty as it sounds. Some of you are, are you've been there, right? Every time I've ever had water in my basement, I've thought, someday, Lord, you're going to lead me to a condominium on the sixth floor where flooding is not a concern. (laughs) And today my hopes and my dreams were dashed. (laughs) Thank you. No, we, you know, we had the sewage back up on the floor of our basement. It wasn't catastrophic, but I learned this in life. A little sewage, bad enough. Bad enough. And so we called this company out, you know, the sewer company, and, and, and they uh, got their cameras down in their pipes, and they discovered it wasn't tree roots or anything like that, but there was actually a bit of the pipe that had broken away and caused a clog. So they actually had to dig up in our yard and repair the pipe at that seam and, and, and put a, a clean-out pipe that comes up in the front yard. Some of you have been there. You've done the drill. And we mopped up and fixed this and fixed that rebuilt the sewer pipes basically right we rebuilt the sewer pipes to address the problem everything is done guy's leaving and he tells me this he says okay it's rebuilt the problems are gone you're good to go he goes but here's the thing if you don't start doing some things differently i'm going to be back here again in two years when you have sewage back up again and he started saying, Here, you know, you got a garbage disposal in your sink. Here's what you need to do. I, I saw a lot of crud in the pipes. You need to flush those pipes better with your garbage disposal. You need to maintain this clean out. You need to do this. You, and he gave us a list of three or four habits that were not part of how we did life before. He said, I have cleaned it. I have rebuilt it. But if you don't develop a new way of living, I'm going to be back here in two years. There's going to be sewage on your floor. So I've become the pipe police in my house. Just ask my family. Did you flush that pipe out? Did you run the water a little longer with the disposal? Did you do this? Did you do that, right? The point is, you can clean it out, you can rebuild it, you can think you've done all the work, but if you don't develop a new way of living, you're gonna end up with sewage on your floor again. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Let's pray about that together. Father, man, I think the metaphor of sewage on our floor is That'll preach now, Lord, won't it? We've all been there. And part of what you've done with us together in these last two months as we've looked at your word and learned from the stories of the rebuilders is is we've we've smelled a little bit of sewage. 
We recognize where there's a little bit of crud on the floors of our lives, where there's a mess that ought not to be there. God, we don't like it. We don't like it. And today, we recognize that you don't like it either. You don't like it either. And so, Lord, I just, I thank you for, and we celebrate together in this testimony that says, here at HRCC, lives are being rebuilt. That's what's happening by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lives are being rebuilt. I've heard stories shared by different members of this church that they talk about relationships, that they talk about spiritual principles, that they talk about disciplines in their lives, that they talk about emotions and attitudes and all manner of things. God, you are rebuilding. You are rebuilding walls that have been damaged, especially in the last year. God, we're clearing that rubble away. The power of your Holy Spirit. We, we hear Nehemiah's words. We didn't even talk about this, but it was Nehemiah who told us, oh, don't mourn. This is a good thing. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of our God, Yahweh, is our strength. And we rely on that strength today. But Lord, as we prepare to turn the page from this series of messages, we, we recognize we're not done rebuilding. By a long shot, we are not done Rebuilding. We're going to go on. We are going to continue to rebuild. Lord, we believe and we receive today your promise that greater things lie yet ahead. Wasn't it Zechariah who told us who would dare despise the day of small beginnings? God, you have greater things yet in store for us. But as we look forward to living in this rebuilt reality, we acknowledge today this kind of the parting truth. You just aren't fixing old things. You're leading us into a new way of living. You're leading us into a new way of living. So Lord, help us, first of all, to receive that. But God, to care for it well. To care for it well. Lest we become these people that fix the sewer pipes, but just go on doing things the old way. And end up with the sewage on the floor once again. No turning back is the rally cry of your people. That's the people that you've called us to be. So Lord, lead us into this new way of living. Make us aware. Help us to grieve and to confess, to repent. Lord, help us to take that inventory. And God, when necessary, to enforce. To enforce the boundary of the and I pray that your blessing will be upon the people. We rejoice together in what you're doing and what you've already done. And in what, Lord, you're going to reveal to us in the days and weeks to come as we remain faithful to your call to rebuild. We receive it today as your word is spoken. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody says, Amen. Amen.